0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so, there's three things that I, that I really want us to observe from this text in Acts chapter 10. And that is number one, a witnessed resurrection. Number two, a preached resurrection. And then number three, an effective resurrection. And so, those. Sort of signposts will guide um, our our walk through Acts chapter 10 this morning. And so we'll start with a witnessed resurrection. And I'm just going to pick up in verse 39 of Acts chapter 10 where it says this. And this is a man named Peter who is preaching. And he says this. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 40. Verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now here's the thing, whether or not we are believers or not in in, uh, the room this morning, I think many of us uh, are are at least sort of have a cursory familiarity with the story of Jesus and, and whether we attest it as true or not. The fact of the matter is that the Bible this morning for us is contending that it is. And so my invitation to you is that, is that we would investigate that, right? Because ironically, right, the resurrection is often the nail in the coffin for the faith of many. That this is that one final hurdle, that one obstacle, that no matter how much we enjoy Jesus' teachings, that no matter how much we may agree with certain aspects of Jesus' ministry, no matter how much we may venerate the good works that He did while He walked on earth, That this is often that last and final stumbling block for many of us because of the sheer impossibility of life being born out of death. And so this is almost like that one moment in Jesus' ministry where we're, where we're nodding our head all the way along. And then when we get to that point where not only Jesus predicts that he will do this, but then it actually is reported as happening that way, that we go, oh. There's the catch. There's the flaw in this whole story, in this whole line of thinking. And so this morning, what what I'm going to hope to do is just give you a few reasons why I think that that this actually took place, that this is a historical event. And there's a few rather obvious reasons, and then I think there's maybe a few that are less obvious. And while I won't have the opportunity to engage with every question, and while I'm not going to spend... A vast majority of time talking about why we even think the scriptures are true, which is probably the first place that we should start. I think I'm going to use some other things that we can visibly, historically attest to that I think are reasons why we can believe that this resurrection was witnessed by real people and that Jesus was witnessed as a real human after his death. And so, what can we know, right? What we see in the text here is not only that Peter is claiming that he and some others have witnessed this risen Christ, that after his death they drank with him and they ate with him, right? But we can know that Jesus was witnessed by some 500 people over a period of 40 days after his death. In fact, that's how the book of Acts begins. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, this is what we read he presented himself, this is talking about Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. So here's the thing, whether we believe this claim to be true or not, the fact of the matter is that we have a historical event that is attested to by a significant group of people. And while While we may think that what Jesus has taught, at least in his ministry, is significant apart from his resurrection, the fact of the matter is that apart from the resurrection, it's really entirely the opposite. It is insignificant. In fact, this is what uh, Tim Keller would say, and if you don't know Tim Keller, he's basically the Yoda of Christianity. Um, But this is what he says. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And so here's the thing. We've talked at least for a little bit this morning about how um, that is seemingly impossible for us. And especially in our day and age, especially um, with sort of the momentous achievements that have been made across the technological and the medical landscapes, right? Right? the idea of someone being raised from the dead, the idea of someone experiencing life after a brutal, shameful death and after being found dead for three full days, in our worldview, it doesn't jive, right? There's no place for that. There's no place really for the supernatural. It's logic. It's what can I rationalize? What can I readily see? What can I test and prove? And I think... We make a grave mistake when we think that the only reason that this, that this line of thinking, that this worldview that is presented for us in Acts chapter 10 only came to be and only came to power because the people of that day were less knowledgeable than us, because they were not quite as smart as us, because they had not quite arrived at the same conclusions in a, in a long line of developing thought as us because they were less educated, less learned. And yet the fact of the matter here is that I think we are much more like these people that we find in Acts chapter 10, much more like those who doubted the resurrection here than we would feel comfortable admitting. Because here's the thing, just like in our modern worldview, there's not really a place for resurrection. There's not really a place for that being possible or plausible, right? In any way, shape, or form. The fact of the matter is that that was also true in the time of Jesus. And so what's what's interesting about this text right here, right now, Peter is preaching to two groups of people with vastly different worldviews. Vastly different understandings of reality. Vastly different frameworks. And the truth about both of them, although they are different, is that there is no room for a resurrected Christ in either one of them. The Jews didn't believe that the resurrection was possible apart from the end of the world taking place. And it's been quite clear that after Jesus is ascended into heaven that the world continues on, right? And so for them, it is not only implausible, it's impossible. And then you have the Gentile, the Greek, right, the philosopher. And for them, this idea of a resurrection was not only untrue, but it was undesirable, in that, in that being resurrected, in that experiencing this life again was futile, an exercise in futility. And so you have two worldviews that, that needed to be overcome, that needed to be over, uh, overcome and addressed ultimately by something that was more powerful, more compelling than the worldviews that they already held. And here's the kicker. Is that their worldviews had been developed over a, a, a much longer amount of time than our sort of postmodern thought that we have developed in in these recent years? So, for those of us who are skeptical this morning, right, and we think that that maybe the the people that were contemporaries of Jesus were not predisposed, that they didn't have a vested interest in the resurrection not being true, I can tell you this morning that that's simply a misreading of history. That both the Jew and the Greek had a vested interest in the gospel not being true. They had a vested interest in the resurrection of Christ not being true. And yet the testimony of Acts and what we can clearly chart throughout history is that somehow these worldviews were flipped upside down and people were added by the thousands day by day to this new family of believers. And so, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is: were these people just simply easily convinced? Did they not hold their former beliefs with any conviction? Or or did they witness something so overwhelming that it forced them to reconsider? That if the account of Acts is true, which we can really verify throughout history, I mean, there's a reason that this line of thought has arrived here today. It's because people accepted it to be true. And thousands and thousands of Jews who had different reasons for not wanting the resurrection to be true and Greeks who had other reasons for not wanting the resurrection to be true had their philosophy and their theology drastically changed. And for many of them in the book of Acts, it happened in an instant. Verse 42 says this, And he commanded us to preach the, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus was witnessed bodily by these people, and then in the expansion of this kingdom, in the expansion of this line of thinking, the resurrection of Jesus was preached boldly. Now some of this shift may be most evident in the person who is currently preaching in this text. Like Peter is the case study for us this morning, I think, of the reality of someone whose worldview did not allow for a resurrected Christ, but whose worldview was eventually upended so drastically by the resurrected Christ, by the, the, the viewing, the seeing of the literal bodily resurrection of Christ, so much so that, that his, his entire outlook, his entire behavior, his entire ministry would change almost in an instant. Now, so some of us may not know who Peter is, and I'll just be as brief as possible with this, but essentially, um, Peter was a fisherman until Jesus came and said to him, follow me. And he sort of gave up all that he had, and he followed Jesus, and he became one of Jesus' 12 disciples, right? And, and even as a part of Jesus' 12 disciples, he sort of belonged to this inner circle of about three, about three other disciples, right? And he's, he's sort of famous for that moment when, when Jesus looks at his disciples and, and he asks them, who, who do you say that I am? And it's in that moment that Peter, sort of on behalf of, of all the other disciples, says, you are the Christ. And it's shortly after that moment, right, that we see Jesus ascend with Peter, James, and John onto the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and he reveals himself to Peter in all of his godness. That in that moment, he sort of sheds his humanity, the vestiges of humanity, and he reveals himself alongside Moses and Elijah to this man, Peter. So Peter's sort of a, a stud during, during Jesus' ministry, to say the least, But we also know that when push came to shove for Peter, we didn't find him defending Jesus' honor and position. In fact, famously, we see him denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. We also see that when he is told by Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty at the resurrection of Christ, he doesn't believe her, even though Jesus told him quite clearly that that's what would take place. So here's a man. So here's a man who... (laughs) who has witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus, and not only as an outsider, but as someone who belonged to Jesus' inner circle, who has seen the transfigured Christ revealed before Him, who sought to bask in His presence on that mountain. And yet, at the moment of Jesus' death, we see Him running. We see Him disbelieving. We see Him doubting. We see him valuing ultimately his life above that which may or may not be true. Everything has now become debatable for Peter. And so what is it that happens in essentially the month and a half between Jesus' death and this moment here in Scripture where Peter is now preaching loudly, proudly, boldly, this resurrected Christ? What made the change in this man? Because here's what's taking place, really and honestly, right? Peter's not, Peter's not preaching to an open crowd, right? Like, this isn't, this isn't a, a friendly gathering. This isn't sort of a, a peaceful moment where everybody's like, okay, it's, it's Easter, let's sit down, let's nod at what the pastor guy has to say, and then we'll leave and everything will be fine. We'll go get some coffee and move about our our lives. Peter is is in hostile territory. Peter is in the middle of a group of people, again, who have vested interests, although for different reasons, in the resurrection not being true. And yet now, rather than denying Christ in the public sphere, he's instead proclaiming boldly that Jesus Christ is not only Lord, but that he is risen. he's offending the sensibilities of both of these groups. He's saying to the Jew, hey, that which belonged to you, that thing that you were so proud of, this this belonging to God, this being God's people and God being your God, that's no longer just for you. The doors of the kingdom have been blown open by the work of Jesus. In fact, that's what we read in verse 34, right? That, He understands now that God shows no partiality, but that now every nation, if there's anyone in them who fears Him and does what is right, they are now acceptable to Him. He is offending, flying right in the face of His peers, of His countrymen, of His heritage, of His lineage. And then in the same vein, He's telling the Greeks, He's telling those that... (laughs) that believe they are wise, that their philosophies are not only foolish, but that they are ineffective to save, and that the only power is to be found in this resurrected Christ. So he witnessed the resurrection, and therefore he preached the resurrection with both boldness and confidence. But that still doesn't explain Peter's boldness completely, right? I mean, in the end, why does it matter if others believe what Peter believes? I mean, after all, belief is a personal matter, one that can and should be held privately, right? What difference does it make to Peter if anybody that he's preaching to believes what he has to say? Well, verse 43, I think, is what tells us that impetus. It says, to him, talking about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here's the thing. I think a lot of times we look at not only the former preachers, but also even preachers and pastors today, we look at them and they say, well, they're just trying to claim a moral high ground, or they're trying to ride the coattails of Jesus. They're fighting a moral revolution, cleansing the world of what we perceive to be bad, and yet what we can see here is that the motivation for Peter is not at all in manipulating or in, or in winning people over to his cause, but rather in seeing people released from the bondage of slavery to sin and to death and to finding new life in Christ because now it's offered to all who would believe. Peter is moved by compassion and love for those who disagree with him because in the resurrection of Jesus, we, we see not merely a historical event to debate, but an effective resurrection for anyone who would come. That as verse 34 and 35 says, this group, these two distinct groups of people who had experienced throughout their history nothing but exclusion from one another, nothing but barriers between one another, now in Christ can go to the same source for salvation, can go to the same source for power to deal with their sins, that all that is broken in them, that all that is ailing them, although different, differently experienced in each culture, is now redeemed and reconciled through the one man. Jesus Christ. And so here we can behold the stunning inclusivity of God. That Peter proclaims the resurrected Christ is not for a limited group of people, but for anyone who would come. That now the salvation that has always been needed by all is available for all in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, if, if you've experienced Christianity as simply sort of this club where if we maintain sort of the, the right moral standards and if we sort of check off or, or present this facade, it will gain us entrance, membership into this people. You have not experienced the gospel. You've only experienced the same moralism that every other religion and every other method of thinking, every other philosophy tells you is necessary. You believe the right things, you say the right things, and you will be honored among men or you will be allowed into this club, and yet what Christianity is putting before us right here, right now, what Peter is putting before us right here, right now, is that we had none of the right things, none of the good things, nothing worthy of bringing before God in order to be venerated, and yet Jesus has given us his righteousness, and yet Jesus has afforded us his salvation, and yet Jesus has given us his clean record in order that we might come before God boldly, knowing that there is nothing but mercy and grace to be found. And so the resurrection of Jesus was and is effective, right? So the resurrection was witnessed. The resurrection was then preached. And my contention this morning is that the reason that you and I sit here and the reason that the resurrection is important is because that witnessed and preached resurrection was also effective. And it's been effective in such a way that you and I now sit underneath its glory and its goodness this morning, 2,000 years after our Savior came. So here's a there, there's two, two people that I want to address this morning. And the first would be those of us in the, in the room who are maybe doubting or who are not believers. And first let me say, one, that that is okay. That Jesus invites your doubting at the same time as he implores your belief. And that those two things are not mutually exclusive. That you can walk in the tension of those things here among us. But what I want you to know this morning is just like what Peter has to say here. And that is that this witnessed and preached resurrection is effective for you today. That anyone who would call upon his name for salvation will be saved. That he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, Jesus didn't die and resurrect just to prove a point, although he did. He died for you. His death was effective payment for that which you couldn't pay. So in the same way that Peter preached the resurrected Christ, not just to prove a point, he preached the resurrected Christ because he believed the resurrection to be effective. That's the same reason for which we preach to you this morning it's not it's not to get you to align with a morality it's not to get you to to join us in in shifting culture it's an invitation to come before the throne of a just mighty god knowing that you won't be condemned because in Jesus you've been afforded all that was needed to enter in it's an invitation Absolutely, what we believe is exclusive in that we believe we believe Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. We believe that. And so, does that exclude other systems of thinking? Yes, it does. And yet, the invitation, the invitation to experience the Lord of this truth, the invitation to experience the person and the work of Jesus is inclusive. It says that to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, that God shows no partiality, but that in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, that we have been preached the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And so today we proclaim to you the resurrected Christ with compassion, with love, with kindness, and with understanding that there is doubt. And yet we would implore you to believe, believing that all that ails us, that all that is broken, that all that is wrong, finds its redemption, finds its restoration in the person and work of Jesus, that that communion that we were meant to live in, not only with God, but also with one another, is restored and made new in the person and work of Jesus, such that now we experience unity where there was hostility, that where we were Jew and Greek, now we are one in Christ, and we would invite you to experience that. And then for those of us who are believers in the room, there's there's two things that I would that I would hope for us this morning. Uh, one one a a personal challenge, and then two um, a, a corporate a corporate challenge and a corporate reality. All right. So if you're a believer in the room this morning, what what I would what I would first remind you before I get to the challenge is that this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of our King Jesus, this witnessed and preached resurrection is effective you not only once, one time in your past, but daily. That is Hebrews 4 told us on Good Friday, that because we have this empathetic high priest, because we have this Jesus who has walked through all of temptation, and escaped unscathed on our behalf. That because we have this empathetic high priest, we can come to the throne of grace not only to receive mercy once and for all, but also to receive grace in our time of need. Believer, this morning you are justified and you are being sanctified. You have received mercy. You can approach the throne of grace in time of need. Jesus defeated your sin. Jesus defeated your death. And by his grace, you will experience new life, life that is truly life. And that is good news this morning. But here's my challenge. When we look at, when we look at Peter... And we look at the way the resurrection changed him fundamentally at his core. What would happen, brothers and sisters, if we really believed the resurrection? How would it change the way, (laughs) how would it change all that we value? Because it's pretty evident that Peter valued his life after Jesus' death. And it's evident that at Peter's death, he valued his life very little. He witnessed the resurrection. And therefore, He preached the resurrection with boldness and with confidence. And we are called to do the same. And then this is my, my final thought. And this is a corporate reality that I think is timely and appropriate in this season. Um, our current cultural situation is such that that many would tell us that this kingdom of God, that this kingdom that Jesus came proclaiming is something that is dying out, is something that is quickly becoming culturally irrelevant, is something that is quickly becoming ineffective, unable, untenable in our current age with our current level of enlightenment. And yet, brothers, the, the, the beauty... The beauty of the resurrection this morning is that it is in fact effective and that it remains such, and that for whatever the cultural narrative may be and for whatever it is that these sort of pundits would want to tell us, that that does not negate, A, the truth of the resurrection, but also its effectiveness, that it is powerful and effective, that it does the work of salvation, that Jesus is still doing what he promised he would do, and that is saving sinners from their own sin, from their own death, not by their works, but by His, in such a way that He receives glory and praise and honor, and in such a way that at the conclusion of all things, there will be a great multitude, a great multitude who come before His throne and freely and willingly worship Him as the God that He is. And so look, the the kingdom of God, by necessity, is a kingdom that is expanding. And no matter what challenges present themselves, and no matter how difficult the cultural issues of the day become, the fact of the matter is that we have testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony, thousands of years of history of the gospel of Jesus Christ overcoming the most entrenched worldviews, the most, the most unassailable worldviews, and flipping them upside down for the sake of his name and for his glory. And you know what? He's going to continue to do that. And you can have confidence in that regardless of what any government, regardless of what, what any reporter or news outlet may say. The kingdom of God is expanding in every corner of the earth because at the conclusion of all things, there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who proclaim the glory of the Lord with their lips and on their knees. And so you find unshakable confidence in that this morning you remember that your Christ is not dead in a grave. Your Christ is risen in victory. He is seated on the throne at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for you and he will welcome you into his kingdom where you will feast with glad and generous hearts, not only with God, but with one another. And that is the reality of the effectiveness of the resurrection. That is what Jesus has done for you. That is what Jesus bled and died to accomplish on your behalf and it is an inheritance laid up for you in heaven that neither moth and destroyed nor thief can steal and so you go you go you know that you have witnessed this resurrection you preach that resurrection knowing that it is effective to do what jesus always promised it would do and that is save sinners and you rest in the fact that the kingdom of god is always about the business of expanding it is always growing. There are always more numbers being added. And you, you want to know how I can know that? Just finally? The way that I can know that is that there are some of you that were here last Easter and you came not as believers, but you are here this Easter and you are here as believers. And that's taken place by the grace of God for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his name. And it's because the resurrection of Jesus is not only true, but powerful and effective. Let's pray.